record to the cloud and there we go so hello welcome everybody we are here with brent cooper who is a i guess i'd call him metamodern intellectual and also behind a think tank called the abstract organization now uh brent i mean smart guy and seems to have this interesting ability to piss off lots of people in lots of different subcultures of the internet it's quite remarkable actually so brent um yeah, I kind of admire that in you. And we were just talking just now, the kind of premise of this conversation. We're interested to have a bit of a pollination of ideas, but then also to engage in some critique of one another as well. I think Brent has got some points that he would like to raise against Daniel and me in the context of the conversation we've had on ontological design. And um, I think Daniel and I have some thoughts on metamodernism as well. So with that said, welcome, Brent. And um, yeah, just introduce yourself a bit if you'd like and tell us about the work you do and <laughs> what your thoughts are on us. Cool. Thanks. Yeah. It's a nice introduction and I appreciate the opportunity to practice introducing myself, which is, you know, always comes out a little bit different each time it's in motion, but um, you know, I'm, I'm trained as a political soci sociologist. So I am always framing things through a kind of comparison and, and dialectic between politics and society, right? And so that's part of why I'm, you know, challenging other people through that sort of lens. And also international relations is my undergraduate degree. So kind of geopolitics also, you know, colors a lot of my priorities and, and kind of framing of things. And so from that, you know, being disillusioned with a lot of where theory was at, where activism was at, I got drawn into kind of metamodern discourses and also wanted to map the terrain of that and try to contribute to that field and kind of normatively lead it in certain directions. And also more recently kind of map out what hypermodernism is too, because you can't really talk about metamodernism, I feel, without understanding its dark side or shadow or, you know, juxtaposing it with a whole other discourse that, that otherwise doesn't actually overlap much. <clears throat> and so, um, yeah, we, you know, a lot of us overlap in interesting ways. And I promote a type of sort of convergence of our efforts rather than just a kind of free for all and an emergence of whatever. Um, and, you know, I, I call my project the abstract organization because the concept of abstraction is something that actually helps flesh out and distill what exactly thinking is on one hand, what is cognitive abstraction and what is actually abstraction in the world, like social abstractions between us, like language and religion and, and uh, you know, just forms like capitalism, like what is it? And uh, the abstraction of money, you know, and finance and, uh, you know, te techno capital, if you want. And so these things, you know, and I'm still, developing the theory, but it, it goes deep into different literatures and different fields. Uh, so abstraction is this kind of through line. So I use it as a tool to kind of try to distill concepts and try to intervene into uh, discourses and, uh, you know, try to try to pierce the veil, try to break through to a paradigm shift, right? I think it's mediated by abstraction, how we think about the world and 
um, money is this theme that keeps coming back. It's part of my kind of ongoing intellectual diet. And I think something we have to talk about for how we change the social conditions. And I don't mean cryptocurrency. I mean, like the abstraction of money itself and how the state produces it. So, um, so there's all, so there's all, all that, I guess that's kind of my intro. And then did you want me to kind of give some bullet points of what my critique is? Um, yeah, let's go for it, man. Let's launch straight into it. Yeah. So, you know, I, um, I'm in the so-called uh, intellectual deep web list with you guys. And I've said on the list many times, I think it, it, it skews right wing quite a bit. There's a lot of centrist or conservative or reactionary kind of attitudes and uh you know i pointed out similar things in game b and you know regardless of the extent that that's true there's a kind of blockage towards sociological thinking people don't want to or are incapable of talking about things like socialism or marxism just on on an intellectual level right and of course uh alexander bard can do that you know he's very literate in all these subjects at the same time i try to his hold his feet to the fire and say you know why why don't you support the left coalition of, of bernie sanders and and whatnot you know so i think intellectually you know all of us are so in a sense smart and informed but but there's a lot of hand waving away kind of some of these social complexities and also just employing each other's kind of concepts uncritically so my sort of case in point uh, with your guys's video is to say like jordan hall's idea of the blue church and red religion you know in my critique i point out like this came from a trump subreddit and you know you can problematize the original source of that the guy who was writing that and then to you know to to import that language wholesale kind of does a disservice to the complexity and other sociological theories that aren't saying you know blue church red religion right and 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 so i have that kind of quite big critique that like we can go deep into that but then also i just say okay if you're going to import this language like where's the green temple like where's a third pillar alternative you know because i do see kind of three main political currents in the world kind of neoliberal centrist right-wing authoritarian and left kind of cosmopolitan socialist right and so to pretend that there's just two sides mm-hmm. even though there is just two parties in america kind of uh, you know, down samples too far what's actually happening. And just broadly speaking in these, in these circles, not just you guys, but like the emerge space that I'm in integral spaces, there's a lot of just um, people actually using their intellect, using their philosophical literacy to ignore and to uh, deny kind of the leftist alternative perspective and you know my own bias aside or whatever like it's actually sociology is um like uh, not in a biased way but it's kind of default kind of uh, socialist leftist uh not and not in any monolithic way right but it's like that because it studies society and, and historical kind of social movements and progress and whatnot so for me, I mean, if we're all to be on the same team, like these things have to 
circle back and converge through a narrative process and just through kind of like uh, material determinism, if you will, you know, the internet, the internet, of course, is enabling that while it's also enabling post-truth. Right. And so uh, you guys have many intelligence, intelligent things to say about those things. But then when, where the rubber hits the road in these so-called sense-making spaces, I feel there's a lot of double standards applied, a lot of like hypocrisy. So, you know, I get kicked out of a space for being aggressive or whatever. But then some of the people like, say, Jordan Peterson or, or James Lindsay, for example, who are extremely aggressive and extremely opinionated and extremely misinformed in some cases, they're they're given a pass. They're apologized for. They're they're actually they're followed, and they're you know people get on the bandwagon because they have a sort of momentum. So I guess the thrust of my critique and my question to you guys is like, how can you uncritically work with and communicate with, say, Jordan Hall when he uncritically embraces like Jordan Peterson, you know? And so it creates because the critiques have been around for the last few years. It's not just me advancing these critiques. I'm kind of asking, how is everybody so uncritical while also being critical of things like social justice or, or whatever, whatever may be in the crosshairs of the news cycle. And, you know, I, this is part of what I try to challenge on the STOA. So I've done two STOA talks now, who's sensing the sense makers. And then one uh, recently on anti-intellectualism. And that was kind of the conceptual capstone to the thrust of my critiques to say that, hey, intellectuals can be anti-intellectual, right? If you're Steven Pinker and you're, you have tons of awards and adulation, it doesn't mean you're above reproach, you know? And if we take someone like Noam Chomsky, you know, he's a intellectual and activist hero of mine and of a lot of people. He's, you know, I can, I can have a different view of him on a given issue, but broadly speaking, he's a role model. And so I'm trying to follow him. I'm trying to seek agreement with him, right? And build consensus with his body of work, which is easy to do if you just follow it sort of, um, you know, just faithfully, but you can also problematize these and go, you know, well, maybe Zizek's a little sloppy here or whatever, you know, maybe Chomsky's a little missing the point here or just being a broken record. But, but broadly speaking, I'm, I'm with them. I'm with the Bernie movement and I'm, you know, I'm proud of that. And so intellectually the, the kind of avoidance of that realm of, of activity of, of political engagement, I think has been a big loss for our community. And too much of the discourse has been, um, directed in the last four years through the intellectual dark web sort of lens or sort of prioritization. And uh, yeah, so it's a good thing that you guys can kind of invite critique and I can in invite it back and we can have a, a proper dialogue that uh, kind of goes beyond everything that's been happening and, and includes all the prefigurative work everybody's been doing, you know, all the games and whatnot. Yeah, for sure, man. I, I think like, I'm, I'm glad that you brought this up and it, it's, it's cool that we get to dig into it. So to start, if we think about this idea of blue church, I think certainly when I use that term, essentially what, what I think it relates to is like a, a structural dynamic rather than 
a specific political orientation, which is where the the blue and the red kind of, for me, aren't the aren't the most significant thing in the actual term. So blue church is it's this through the kind of lens of Marshall McLuhan's work. It's the mass media society. So literacy leading into television, radio, advertising, the nation state and the post nation state, the ability through media technologies to create a kind of universal identity that holds actually vast swathes of people together and typically doing this by telling them they live in a meritocratic individualistic society where scientific progress is the means for advancement where then the uh, the red religion comes in as the description for the new digital swarm phenomenon that is kind of partly a reaction against the blue church but also just something set off by the new the new technological possibilities it's a bit of a a wild west space and the blue and red designations kind of get connected to it in the sense that in the context of the 2016 election and the fact that it was the the online swarms if you will that drew people towards trump and indeed towards say brexit in my country much more than say the traditional institutional and media apparatus which was connected to this um you might say the neoliberal establishment you could even go that far as to say that and so so when i use those term the term blue church it's not to delineate a left-right political orientation so much as just to speak mm -hmm. of, of the media environment that we are now leaving. I think there's also something, I agree I agree with your critique, Brent, and, and I, I agree with everything that you said, Owen. I would just add that blue and red are obviously loaded terms, but there's an interesting aspect about using the term, and I'm being very creative with my theory here, and, and perhaps I should be a little bit more, you know, when, when we use these terms and import them wholesale, the, there's space to question them as well. But church is a good word because it refers to this indeed neoliberal 20th century apparatus composed of academia, media, the expert class so essentially that that the translation of of the of, of power and like hollywood and those who are responsible for saying what true what is true and so the use of the term blue church refers to the previous paradigm of these people who were responsible for saying what is true and then once the network paradigm once technology rolls into the internet age that old church is a little bit dissolved and something else comes in. Now, it may have happened that they looked blue and red in 2016. Maybe they won't in 2020 or 2024. I think that's kind of beyond the point. I mean, at least my, what's interesting for me is, is really how, <clears throat> where it leads in terms of the, the actual acceleration of the flows of information and what that does in, in, in truth in sense making and then the second point that, that you brought up which i think is, is a good one and and here's a thought let me know what you think i'm um i would consider myself a design theorist meaning that what ontological design is for me more than establishing sort of a coherent body of work 
through which to analyze an ever-flowing world. It tries to be a little bit of an operative engine for design. Something very, it's, it's not really a lot of things, but it can be applied to many things. Uh, so as opposed to being kind of a map of the world, it's, it's a way to map the world, if you know what I mean. It's more processual in that sense. And so in that sense, not only am I perfectly comfortable with snagging a concept from Jordan Hall or from Jordan Peterson, or even further from Nick Land and, and, and Dugan, people right, with, with right. clear fascist uh, tendencies in some point, mm. but even in, 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 in other examples, in, in other people from other edges of the spectrum, what I'm comfortable with doing, I think, and I think it's interesting is that there's a certain, I think today we're, we can do a sort of a collage and take a little bit of what is interesting from the dissolving landscape of meaning making where borders are so mobile. So really like, do I really have to agree with everything and, and understand everything this guy says in order to make sense of what uh, to use him in my theory? Well, maybe I should, but I will not because I don't have enough time. And also because ontological design, the way that I approach it is more like this, this little egg that moves, this processual. That's why the, your work on abstraction is so cool because it has this operative tint to it and thereby is less, so, so the ontological design is less philosophy than design theory and, and hopefully applied design theory, which again, mm -hmm. used to advance any political purpose if we yeah. look from the border point of view. You know, it could, it could help bring in revolutionary aims or the other end of the spectrum right um so that's that's mm. what i would say are you a fan of benjamin bratton and like i've i've written about him so i try to through my work you know provide a window to that because i think he's kind of in a way like the arch ontological designer you know and i i don't want to speak for him but i think i think he's very leftist at heart but he's not too politically engaged you know and he's in russia you know, whatever. So, so, you know, that's fine. But like, I try to direct people to his work, but I also would say like, you know, don't cherry pick from his work because he is kind of presenting like a paradigm and there's enough like, you know, uh, kind of uh, meat there that you can, you can lose yourself in it and just work within his, his parameters. And, you know, it, it's ever evolving. All right. So the Strelka Institute comes after the stack and then he's got the the new normal, and then the the um, the terraforming is, is the the kind of current phase, and it's just, I think it's really groundbreaking stuff. And then I tried to, you know, I worked on a smart cities book throughout 2019. It was published in in March or something or May, and and then I published an article about it. Kind of, it's kind of my review and kind of my, you know, communication of convergence theory. And basically, because it was a smart cities book, we tried to develop something that was, you know, related at least to what Bratton was doing and related to a lot of other things. Like, uh, so I cited some of the kind of metamodern thought and also, you know, Michelle Bowens with uh, the commons and th those kinds of theories. But then I also kind of clash with Bowens just around talking about the intellectual dark web kind of issues and status and, you know, can... I, I want I want to get through that, you know, and, and not just like agree to disagree forever, but actually get somewhere. And so, so I'm I'm saying all this to get back to a kind of fundamental point, which is like, 
I can I can appreciate your guys's ontological design theory, and 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 Bratton's for whatever and smart city you know design. But and if we're not also advocating for you know massive massive investment in education and infrastructure and um, you know housing and and income itself, you know, giving people a UBI, none of these theories will become practical or, or have any utility beyond our own little individual projects and our own, you know, kind of operationalizing these things for ourselves, like getting off on getting be better understanding, you know, there's a kind of thrill to this cutting edge stuff, but none of it means anything if we can't, um, you know, solve the climate change kind of a collective action problem within 10 years, right? And so that's why like, I'm very kind of sort of old school mainstream in a sense that I want like a robust United Nations. I don't want superpowers duking it out in the 21st century. Mm -hmm. I want every state and I want, you know, at, from the local to the global level to have every citizen cared for. You know, and so this is just basic democratic socialism 101. And I, I, I'm inviting intellectuals to get on board with that because I think anyone who's doing this kind of work, it necessarily dovetails with th those kinds of logistics, right? So, so Jim Rutt and I argued about the Green New Deal. I'm like, you know, and he was a Bernie supporter. And I'm saying basically, well, it, it can be funded. It has to happen. And Jim Rutt's saying, no, it's not fiscally responsible. You know, where's the, where's the money going to come from? And so we, you know, that issue literally falls apart because we can't build a consensus around the economics of it. Mm -hmm. And that process is blocked because we have disagreements over the kind of culture war <laughs> aspect of it, right? And I'm saying we should actually all kind of step up to prioritize overcoming those epistemic conflicts um, and then, you know, see if we can find some baselines on agreeing like, you know, hey, healthcare for everybody, education for everybody. And then that's going to facilitate your ontolog ontological design. I, I, mm, let, me, let me throw something to you and see what, see what you think about it. Um, I do not disagree with anything that you said except for perhaps one thing, that is that roots to power. So ontological design originally appeared in my life and, and, and started to theorize around it in the context of <clears throat> achieving effects through design. So in architecture school and in, in the beginning of my design career, I was confronted oftentimes with, and, and this is pure design speak, huh? confronted many times with a lot of projects that purported to uh, install systems to create uh, sort of frameworks for understanding. But then they were all plagued by certain ineffectivity, right? And, and there was perhaps a great theoretical body of work behind them, especially, and they were, especially the 60s and 70s and mostly 60s and 70s French school of, of, of critical theory and how that purports to design. They were very connected and there was, there was always a lot of very beautiful theory behind that, um, like New Babylon by that Dutch guy, and, and which is a concept that we, we, we hear about in metamodernism in terms of uh, reinventing struggle as play and all those things. But from my perspective, they all remained relatively uh, in effect, not only ineffective, but they were always recuperated by the market, always. And that always annoyed me. 
um, you know, you look at Centre Pompidou the, in, in France, which is this building that was inspired by previous visions of an architectural playground where people's full potential could be fulfilled. And then it's kind of, I think it's a train station that just looks like kind of weird. It doesn't mm-hmm. do what mm-hmm. it reports, what it says it does. You know, oh, my building will free people. No, it won't. Yeah. No, it won't. <laughs> yeah. And so I was like, okay, how do... How, how do how do things achieve power and and get stuff done? And this is a question that is transversal to 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 the political spectrum in this sense, right? Stalin answered this question, Hitler answered this question, and today we have to answer this question as well in our terms. And the answer that I came to uh, was ontological design in terms of the feedback loop. So so I'm sure you're you're aware of that. And that philosophical insight, pack, together with the changing technological conditions of our day. With technology, with with internet, and and with that, I believe that they can offer a route to power that we can even see playing out in our real lives. Right? Not to not to to say that education and, and healthcare aren't really important things, which they are, and I would advocate them for for everybody, obviously. But hasn't the internet also represented a tremendous? dissolving force, a tremendous route to power, a tremendous way to put in place power relations in our societies for whoever wields them. That's the whole point, right? You don't invent the hammer and then get to say, don't murder people with it. That, mm-hmm. That's going to happen, but that's kind of a property of the technology. And so what, what I would throw back to you and see what you think about it is like <clears throat> that though the political and perhaps the consensual mainstream democratic socialist route to power or to development is definitely a valid one. It is not the one of the vanguard because it, it's, it kind of, if you think in terms of the like levels of abstraction or levels of how it happens first, it, I think it tends to happen first somewhere else. And then it seeps down into the level of political, political action. So this vanguard here, uh, can have can be technological it can be it can be a little bit more artistic whatever it is i mean for example and just to finish off there was this i think it was the founder of it was not tiktok or maybe someone who works for tiktok in america they had a book of of the Lusian theory on their bookshelf and i'm like this is something very notable right mm-hmm. what are they doing here and, and those subtle ways of affecting power, framing discourse, is are, are, are where I feel there's something to it. It's what Zizek says, right? Um, if your boss is an asshole, then at least you know he's an asshole. But if he's your friend, you don't even have the means to articulate your own unfreedom. And so I believe that design can represent a way and technology can represent ways to affect power uh, in ways that are perhaps more volatile and more uh, effective than, than the one that you just mentioned. I don't know if I was clear. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's a couple threads there. So I'm just going to say what kind of comes to mind. Um, one is that, you know, I mean, I, I definitely don't consider like kind of the IDW either form or rebel wisdom or whatever, as kind of curating this vanguard or game B, you know, I think that's kind of kind of a mistake. But but there's also there's a lot to be said about our different folk theories of power and politics in determining our kind of expectations, right? So you know, years ago I had a a friend that I worked with, and you know, we were just like 
whatever laborers in this kind of uh, lab environment and um, kind of he was a friend because we both had a background in critical theory but for whatever reasons he was a Trump supporter in the 2016 election and I was a Bernie supporter and he saw it in terms of his kind of preferred narrative like oh Trump's the joker and he's gonna you know burn it all down and this is what we need and and I'm like okay I I get that but that's insane. <laughs> you know, like it's just you're you're in it for the joyride, not for the actual grounded historical political struggle of what needs to happen. Right. So we're coming at the narrative with our pre-contrived notions and expectations that, oh, he's the joker, and there's actual, you know, anti-anti-hero, and there's some logic to that inversion, and we need to watch it play out and just appreciate where people are at. Okay, but it was actually an incoherent debate between the two of us because he kept, you know, pulling all these, these, uh, you know, wild cards out to make his arguments, and I'm trying to just make a grounded, basic argument. Like, look at Bernie's track record. Look at his career. And and the point I'm getting to is, you and others in Jordan Hall are very uh, astutely aware of the problems of corporate media, yet there was like no commentary on the very clear fact of, of how corporate media was suppressing the Bernie campaign, right? And there was a Vice documentary that came out in, I think, February that kind of retrospectively just chronicled and proved all this. It was called Bernie Blackout. And so it's like, hello, I'm like, I'm like shouting at the top of the lung, my lungs, like the blue church is fucking suppressing the Bernie movement, which is an authentic emergence. Yep. And, and now we have a, a Biden like textbook blue church kind of presidency, right? So this is what we've graduated into. And I feel like we've all failed as a, as a sense-making collective to avert these types of, you know, co co you know kind of fallout from our, from our decision trees. And I, th I think we can do better. That, that's fundamentally my, my injunction all the time. Like, I wish I could have convinced my friend four years ago that he was on the wrong side of history. I wish I could have, you know, been more influential in game B and whatnot. But I, I feel like the capacity is there to grok how we're being manipulated and what we should do with that insight. I wholly agree with everything you said, but I would say, like, completely. There was a media blockout. The blue church is Biden, and he suppressed mm -hmm. other alternative movements in Bernie, who has... Uh, great policies if you look at them individually um, but you also mentioned something which was the the narrative and mm -hmm. the narrative of, of it all and my only response to that is not so much that um, one or I feel inclined I do not feel inclined to participate in in that debate in the terms that it is formulated my inclination has always been to step outside of those terms of, of the terms within which that debate happens and try to invent some sort of Archimedean point, reinvent the rules of the game, especially in the age of the internet and technology, right? And through that, achieve effectiveness, which is, mm -hmm. uh, you know, mm -hmm. theorists on during the World War II, during right now with Trump, they always complain, and rightly so, that we didn't achieve anything. Why? Because the tools for effectivity has been, have been overlooked, I guess. Um, and again, I, I come back to the examples of for example, the fact that the iPhone has changed the world so radically. I give this example. So, so in architecture, there was a lot of discourse on urbanism throughout the second half of the 20th century about how urbanism can be 
and you know this, right? You've studied this. And, and what I would argue is that the impact of the iPhone and of Google Maps on urbanism has vastly outsized the impact of the theorizing efforts uh, that came before that. So my point is, what's going wrong? We're looking at the wrong thing. Let's put the yeah. weight where it, where it hits. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree on this idea of an Archimedean point, and we're looking for that leverage, and that's what attracts us to to meta theories that that uh, I don't like this phrase, but that transcend and include everything that came before, right? And yeah, I mean, I've just felt with my trajectory that it just so happens that my kind of meta theories actually dovetail with the political emergence that that I would say like is the legacy of Martin Luther King and the civil rights movements, is the legacy of the WTO protests, is the legacy of the uh, Occupy movement, is the legacy of Black Lives Matter. Like all these things actually converge and really need to be incorporated. But but uh, I'm trying to agree with you that like part of my struggle too has been trying to find this Archimedean point that um, actually goes over and above all the kind of contextual theory below it that actually has not anticipated the meta crisis of the 21st century you know so yeah. there, there's there's bread breadcrumbs throughout the 20th century that is like the speculative of the meta crisis that that some people did see it coming you know and i believe that that many people today see it coming and know what know what's happening and are the are the effective leaders that that need our support and so you know although jordan hall kind of endorses Jordan Peterson, you know, I, I know in my critiques that he also kind of endorsed AOC the next year, kind of, you know, is authoring kind of a supportive perspective of those things. And I mean, I think those two are like diametrically opposed, but I give him credit for being on AOC's side because she catches a lot of flack by, from misogynists, from, um, you know, white supremacists, from skeptics generally. And uh, yeah, you know, I think I think um, coming back to this Archimedean point, you know, and, and it being money, the abstraction of money and modern monetary theory, you know, this is actually pretty close to the Bernie and AOC kind of kind of um, core of the of those movements like they are key actors of the movements. Right. AOC mm -hmm. is a key author on the Green New Deal. And uh, Stephanie Kelton, a big MMT pro proponent, was an advisor to Bernie, and and Andres Bernal, who's who's a thinker and activist on MMT, is an advisor to, and friend to AOC. So all these things are actually connected in very constructive, you know, optimistic ways. If we could just actually raise awareness around it and build a consensus around it, because um, well yeah. I think where I, I find myself thinking a lot at the moment is just, I don't know if this democratic socialist or green new deal vision is the one to solve the problems. I don't know if it's radical enough. I think it is still in many ways, a blue church mass society attempt at solving the problems. It's, it's gets the elected officials into the big political, political bureaucracies and then let them solve it it's still fundamentally working with those rules of the game. It's just that hope that if we get the right people into the top of the institutions, then, then we'll sort mm. it out. Or similarly, this vision that if we could just increase 
education, the implicit assumption being that the education system as we have it now with schools and universities mm-hmm. is, <laughs> is, is desirable. And increasingly, I don't think it is. I think school mm-hmm. is a mass production factory for neoliberal consumer products for, for employers. I think university is a totally corrupt establishment that charges people far more money than they need to pay to get a decent education. And I think that, so talking about, say, this, this vanguard that Daniel mentioned, the internet gives us the possibility to basically declare war, for example, on the universities and find out a mm-hmm. much better way of doing, you know, in fact, I think that's exactly what we're doing right now. I think that's exactly what we're doing right now. We're actually getting engaged citizens who would like, who research what they're interested in and are interested in making a real impact on what they're interested in, just doing yeah. the conversation yeah. and making them completely public and completely mm. open. And I think there is a business model to discover in the next 10 years of how mm. do you have guys like ourselves and our extended network having small digital classrooms and perhaps charging us some fee just so we can pay the bills and mm. while also spreading knowledge, information, access to networks, access to actual movements that are doing things. For example, the European men's movement that I'm quite involved in, we're doing men's work kind of across Europe at the moment and hopefully going to expand it. That is where I'm much more interested in placing my political thought and agency than in supporting like the Green New Deal or the uh, yeah. the democratic yeah. socialism. I, I get it. I got two things to say. One is that these are the types of critiques I like where you're not saying the Green New Deal is wrong. You're saying it doesn't go far enough. And I, I agree. Right. And I, I don't want people to think like, oh, Brent advocates a Green New Deal. He thinks that's going to solve any, everything. I, I advocate the Green New Deal as a kind of minimum viable, you know, platform. But then I, I love the critiques that go beyond. Right. And so through the Strelka program, they actually have a they have a presentation on a military Green New Deal. And that's basically kind of going beyond the Green New Deal. I mean, I think, and, and Bratton has this phrase from, from the website, greener New Deals. And it's basically like just saying, like, it needs to be, you know, times 10, an order of magnitude more intense and, and scaled. But um, the other thing is, like, so I get you we all have limited time and engagement. And you, you're, you're saying you're, you know, engaged with men's movements and sort of apolitical and so I guess in a sense that's fine, but my kind of complaint, it's less a criticism and more of a complaint is that there's a sort of brain drain where some of the smartest people are drawn away from politics because they see no personal incentive, they see no positive outcomes, when it's precisely the logic of kind of tipping points and, and you know, rallying cries and a bandwagon, not in a fallacy sense, but like you know, converging around, uh, you know, Sunrise Movement or Extinction Rebellion precisely to, at the end of the day, vote in a collective way that puts, say, you know, Jeremy Corbyn or Bernie Sanders in power. And again, not that that's going to solve everything in itself, but it's going to make a difference in a lot of people's lives. It's going to point us in the right direction and it's going to make it easier for people like us to keep doing the kind of cutting edge work where we're looking for that Archimedean point and say, okay, let's now transition from a Green New Deal to UBI, to full education, full employment, revamping the universities. And to put it kind of like um, 
tongue in cheek, right? Kind of like fully automated luxury communism, right? Kind of Star Trek utopianism that, that uh, you know, without, you know, teleporters and warp drives, like we can still have the kind of fulfillment of uh, enlightenment ideals and kind of world peace, you know, without it just being some pipe dream, it's like actually practical within our, within our lifetime. So, yeah. So I, I want to encourage people to not just like, don't tune out too far because we're missing these historical opportunities, right? Like uh, Noam Chomsky said that Bernie's movement, Bernie's candidacy itself was historic. His success with his was historic. And then even though he lost twice in a row, Noam Chomsky says it was a success. We foregrounded all these ideas. It's now mainstream to talk about Medicare, Medicare for all. It has a large majority of support. And yet these things are all still held back. So I have a hard time kind of celebrating the victory prematurely because it's all just still in the talk phase. And if we can get through this threshold together, like, okay, pass a Green New Deal, pass Medicare for all, then, then you know, that, that box is ticked for me. I don't have to like, you know, harangue and, and critique everybody so hard because we've made a major step forward and then we can keep, as I say, keep doing our work, keep looking for those Archimedean points to like, go beyond politics, go beyond technology over the next 10 years, have a real quote unquote paradigm shift. Mm. It's interesting. Yeah. I think this search for the paradigm shift is the key thing. I think this is the attractive point that most of us are, are aiming after. What, what I think now, I come back to what my, my anarchist friends in the UK say, where they're like, we hate the Labour Party. Because what does the Labour Party do? It mm. sucks all of everybody's left-wing radical energy away up into this thing where then they just have this sense that if we can get the Labour Party in, we're good. Mm. And my fear, I know I'm more or less rehashing the point I previously made, but it's like we only have so much energy and attention too much focus on something like a green new deal that isn't radical enough just gives a false sense of security. And so where I'm much more interested in is really in the radical underground where we can do totally new stuff with technologies, totally new social operating systems, totally new ways of relating to each other as people that are not filtered through the alienated individualized hierarchical bureaucracies of blue church, neoliberal capitalism. Yeah, essentially. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. If I might just add something, one of the things that makes me um, reticent to uh, fully engage with, 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 with projects of this type is the fact that I believe that they do not formulate the coming problems of the next decade well enough. In other words, techno capitalism. Is advancing and accelerating really rapidly. We know that the market really recuperates any sort of creativity and kind of deflates any quote-unquote revolutionary potential that exists, really integrates that into the economy, yeah. castrates it. And, and, you know, the acceleration of information, of technology, hasn't, well, that is the, the protagonist uh, in my view. And 
what many of these political movements try to do, and here's a bold statement, is to try to solve 21st century problems with 20th century methods. And so that's why I'm always trying to like look into working with the grain of techno capital. So, so for example, ontological design is, is closely tied to this, to this idea, to the idea that in the next 10 to 20 years, you know, the inequality is going to be also at the level of people becoming perfect consumers, micro-targeted to exhaustion, their ability to formulate their own and freedom wrenched, wrenched from them. And that to me sounds like, uh, uh, I mean, there's many problems. I, I cannot, I'm not going to compare problems. You know, healthcare is an important thing. Education is an important thing. But hell, is even our ability to conceptualize of our, our problems being also uh, taken away from us? What, what sort of, isn't there grounds for revolutionary action there? And thirdly, are the methods and the technologies for achieving that power, for achieving those revolutionary goals, don't they exist in things that are outside of the traditional mechanisms of politics as they have been formulated in the 20th century? Do, do they sit outside of activism as we understand it today? Do they sit outside of, you know, these movements that we've been describing? My answer would be yes. My answer would be something like, for better or for worse, um, oftentimes for worse, but, you know, if we look at, I'm not saying this gleefully, but pragmatically, the internet, look at what Airbnb did to the rental market. Look at what Amazon did to uh, bookstores. This was like 10, 20 years happening. Nobody could, could have predicted. It's, it's, it is as if we had already lost and been defeated and need to reinvent the ways that we even tackle these problems because mm-hmm. at this higher level, we all agree that these fucking problems are invading us from the near future. That's that's yeah. land, by the way. And so- and it's, it's overdetermined. That's a word that I use a lot to explain these things because you need that label in order to start dissecting the, the multi-causal aspect of it. That it's like, like you, you can even know that it's coming and there's nothing you can do to avoid it. So we need that deep, deep leverage to over, you know, to underdetermine these issues. Exactly. And that's, that, that's part of why I'm attracted to, you know, a lot of what Owen uh, does with his thinking is to bring this pathic, pathic intuition to it. We call it the mad wisdom. Why? Because my tendency is to feel that at this threshold, not only of, of activity, of critique, but also of cognition, where we le- where at the edges of our abstraction, I don't know if you agree with this, maybe you can tell me that, but at the edges of our extra- abstraction, there's a space for intuition. There's a space for alternative modes of cognition. Here's a revolutionary uh, thing for you. The paranoid critical method by Rem Kulas, who, by the way, is an architect who used to build a lot of neoliberal buildings and buildings for these, you know, $100 million type buildings. But he also pr- came up with this paranoid critical method, which is this weird way to shuffle the grammar of how concepts come about. Uh, it's inherited by Salvador Dali and then juxtaposing them together to create new meanings. I'm looking at that and I'm thinking, fuck yeah, this feels so, there's a certain pragmatism to how small and handy it is and deployed in the right place and boom, something happens. I think that that technology of power produces larger returns on the power that you, on the investment that you do uh, uh, than on my opinion and in my decision, the involvement with, 
uh, politics per se. But that's just me. Yeah, I, th- I think all that makes sense. You know, I'm I'm finding agreement uh, with you guys. Um, one thing that popped into my head is is just a blind spot in the kind of agency that goes with this this thinking. You know, um, the focus on kind of techno capital and cybernetics and and whatnot is. Um, <clears throat> You know, I mean, this is a this is an obvious thing, but in part, kind of the inter the supply chains, right? So the computers we're using, you know, have whatever you know, cobalt that was mined by slaves or whatever, whatever the thing is, right? Everything's kind of tainted, and and so, I, I mean, I mean, the the point you make about capture, you know, regulatory capture and creative capture by the market is is key but our agency is being captured too to dissuade us from the political engagement which at the end of the day i'm i'm saying is for others it's for those invisible other across the world who are just slaving away in a factory but so there's that and then i also wanted to add like i totally agree with like let's say on the political left even through a kind of Green New Deal, there was a lack of discourse about, about systems change, about paradigm shift. And I got very little traction trying to trying to push this left metamodern synthesis because most leftist spaces are dwelling or utilizing that kind of 20th century language, labor movements and unions and you know, all you know, all these things. So I agree with that like a kind of that adequacy of the lab to care about paradigm shift or systems change or high theory and uh, I'm, I'm i'm still i'm still struggling to advance that you know like like i had a good good kind of um synergy with michael brooks right who's a very active out in front kind of uh, leftist organizer and commentator and and he passed away this summer and kind of a large part of the momentum with that dies with him. And it's just so tragic because we worked so hard to advance a critique of the intellectual dark web and to build a kind of left consensus around that particular issue. But then the, the, the consensus never went outside the left itself. You know, it didn't, it didn't, it didn't really get through to the IDW figures and, or in their, and their interlocutors. So, um, you know, I'm just I'm just saying that to kind of agree with your guys's point, but also invite you back, like like use your knowledge to try to contribute to leftist movements because they're not a lost cause, even though they're trapped in this kind of you know language from even the 19th century. Like I hate the the term you know um, the means of production, like that is just so sort of archaic compared to how supply chains and production actually works in a highly highly abstract way today. And, and in a sense, Marx did anticipate a lot of this, but, but not all of it, you know, and we're, we're really in this um, kind of paradigm shift moment where um, indeed a lot of the language is redundant or defunct, that we need to reinvent it, but in ways that does not cancel out the efforts of, of say environmentalists or labor organizers or feminists and whatnot, because they all had a point, they all had a thrust and they were all part of a 
broader program in the first place, right? Martin mm -hmm. Luther King's quest of economic justice beyond racial justice. So um, if we had a left consensus that our coalition rather that was even bigger than the Bernie coalition that happened that included game B that included the Alexander Bards and, and whatnot, you know, and, and these opportunities are going to happen again. We're going to, we're going to get the, the, get those opportunities. We have to seize them rather than just like go off and, you know, let's, let's have a podcast talking about Rene Girard for 30 episodes or whatever, whatever it is, you know, like as interesting as these things are, we can't all reside in the graduate mindset, which is just uh, fun and therapeutic and challenging, but, but that it doesn't translate to any actual, uh, you know, transformation in the planetary consciousness itself, which, you know, to take that new age language and ground it, it goes back to, okay, universal healthcare for 8 billion people, universal K to 16 education for 8 billion people. If we can dream that big, we actually do have the logistical capacity to do it, but it requires us to like break, re, make real breakthroughs in our, in our, um, sense-making oh. sessions and, and, you know, what we're, what we're doing right now, trying to have a real deep conversation. So let me throw a quick fire question to you. If you could choose between achieving consensus, perhaps on these, these spaces that we were talking about or having one shot at changing one thing, and it really worked and it really changed without consensus, but like a little headshot, which one would you rather have? Mm, that's a good kind of dilemma, let's say. <clears throat> um, maybe I could give kind of two answers, like a kind of Schrodinger's cat kind of thing. Like How metamodern of you. Yeah, <laughs> both and. In one scenario, I'd say that one kind of thing I would wish for would be a UBI. You know, but but even with that, I say like, well, just UBI is not enough. Like people have to have some sort of community to spend it in, community to to exist in and thrive with. Like just cash in a dystopian hellscape is not the solution, right? So UBI is that kind of Archimedean point, but it needs a bit, you know, there's some conditions uh, attached with that. And then the to answer the other question, Owen's frozen. Is he? Uh... he he's probably going to come back. <laughs> okay. Um, so, so please continue. Okay. Yeah. To try to address the other alternative, if I could build consensus, I think, let, let's say I'm leaning in that direction because it's a harder thing to do. And it actually means everybody's minds are kind of collectively. Um, oh, there he is. It's my internet went down there. If, uh, if, if we can do that, it means everybody is kind of synchronized, you know, it, and there's kind of, and it, you know, I'm doing a consensus workshop on Wednesday. You guys are welcome to, to join, but like I make a clear point in my consensus article, it's not groupthink, right? Consensus building and groupthink are like the opposite because groupthink is bad. And we don't just want, like, it's not, hey, this is my theory, everybody come on board and support it. Because uh, that could lead to groupthink or capture or whatnot. So yeah, I tried to, I tried to answer that, that question in both directions. I think it was yeah. a good, uh, 
a good question. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. yeah, go ahead. I'm mindful that I need to wrap this up in a sec. So I'm thinking I'll invite you both for just some kind of final comments and thoughts. I mean, I think I'm just going to mention one thing in relation to the thing Brent said just before this last thing about, about supporting or connecting to the left. And I have two thoughts on this. The first is that I think we need to figure out exactly what these new operation systems are, if you will, before we just go and try and get mass political support for them. It, it, the, the thing that the contemporary left struggles with, I think, is lack of a paradigm shift vision. What we're working on now is trying to theorize the paradigm shift and then hopefully technologize the paradigm shift, but we haven't cracked it yet. And to go and try and get mass movements behind it when it's still just a pretty idea in the sky, I think that's the wrong way to apply energy. I think to kind of use what Daniel said, it's to go for the headshot first and then be like, okay, guys, look, we figured out how to get the headshot. Now come and check it out. The second thought is that, Again, this idea of connecting to the left. This is precisely why I've got engaged in men's work. Men's work is... So the second thought about men's work, this is how I think I can actually reach subjects who are struggling in a way that I will be able to understand their struggle and hopefully have a meaningful impact on their lives. And so that's where I get that kind of engagement, if you will rather than going through a a political party it's more community oriented if you will so those would be my closing thoughts i've been a bit interrupted by the uh, by the internet <laughs> hmm so on that uh, i understand where cooper's coming from when it comes to the building of the consensus and getting people together on on like-minded challenges um as opposed to the fragmentation however perhaps fragmentation and atomization of opinions attitudes and and worldviews is an effect of the internet and in that sense in the same way that you know Schlotterdijk speaks about the egosphere uh and he speaks that you know as modern capitalism and then with technology moves forward we become increasingly atomized in our own spaces in our own lives it's like individualism times 10 might it not be that that is causing some difficulties in achieving consensus we know the internet sometimes does that i'm thinking out loud uh, we also know that the internet is really good to create some sort of convergences but they tend to be populistic and very limbic and 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 you know if you can design a slot machine you can design those consensus as well and um, <clears throat> and hey, maybe I'm not the 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 you know I I, I prefer I, I when it comes to community, I live in Portugal, and and you know community for me means my grandma's village and the community in there and my family and 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 so it's it has that sense for me, um, sort of a co-creative community where people help each other. But then on the other hand. I guess that my way to tackle what I believe to be the same struggles that we're all tackling, because they are, is through 
tackling the the ontological aspect of it and ontological is a heavy word but i use it deliberately because our very being in the world is so radically altered by technology that it doesn't do away with the need to actually achieve political change and and, and, and advancing certain causes which makes it all just complex so while we're changing the world's changing the borders in the world are changing so it's really complex and so my way to sort of grab something as a, it, my sort of sword, my tool is really this operative engine of design theory that is ontological design. And hopefully there's an applicability to that that can enable, I know, a solid change, a headshot. Mm, because I've seen time and time again, and this is a pet peeve of mine, how the market and the corporate world recuperate everything from, you know, you know, having worked at a large company and seeing all these awareness events here and there and everywhere. And I just felt that it just, this is not it. This is not where it should be going. Uh, this is the spectacle. Guy Debord is, is one of my mm-hmm. top, top thinkers. Mm-hmm. And his theory on the society of the spectacle, speaking about the autonomous march of the non-living and, and the autonomous, the fetish, fetishization of images just creates this place for capture, like you say, but even for like recuperation that puts us in a, in a tough spot out of which, you know, maybe we've already been defeated and that's our starting point. And that's the starting point that I would assume that I assume for myself and thus the ontological gravity of speaking about ontological design and, and these deeper Heideggerian concepts, because otherwise, Otherwise, I don't know. That that is at least my 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 approach and my thought. Yeah, I I hear you both and appreciate those insights. And I think, you know, we're we're so similar in many of those regards. And you know, a thought that pops into my head is even after I finish a a, a great like finish writing uh, what I think is a great article. I'm immediately like disillusioned with it. You know, like I burst my own bubble, I auto critique it. I recognize it's not going to make any impact. And then it's like this, so what factor? Like, where is the, the outcome of what I'm, what I'm doing, what any of us are doing? Um, and I think that's good to be self-critical and ch- keep trying to uh, like iterate further and find leverage. Uh, so I wanted to make that point. And also I wanted to say there's a book called Ontopolitics in the Anthropocene. Uh, Daniel, if you've heard of that, so that, that concept might be a bridge for us to have a further conversation on the ontological and the political, right? How they, how they overlap and intersect. And mm-hmm. that's from 2018. I can send it to you. We can, we can like dive in and you know, explore that concept together. And then, and then related to that, I wanted to say like, you know, to your point, Daniel, about everything being captured, like part of my impression, you know, not to not to undermine Owen's work and contributions to communities is to say also that that is a, a kind of example of of something being captured and a market being created for it. Right. So the fact that there are men who need men's work or or whatever it may be is a consequence of a failing education system or a failing healthcare system to provide the extensive comprehensive you know care politics of care 
to to avert those situations in the first place right so a lot of the kind of jordan peterson like bootstrap solutions like clean your room and you know be a man kind of is like on the on the wrong end of the stick of the of the problem if that is a working metaphor <laughs> so like so like i don't i say that not to discourage what you're doing and finding meaning and connecting with other people and men and and you know we need to do bo both is all i'm saying and so like i do a lot online you know i could do a lot more too on the local community level to to feel engaged and to feel that i'm giving back <clears throat> but you know, fundamentally, like I urge myself, I urge us all to try to do both because the political for all its, you know, inadequacies is still a lever to advance some of these basic systemic changes. Mm -hmm. that, uh, if it's the right policy, it, it works. And like, yeah, like I, I want, I want sort of dramatically rapid changeover and change. And I think that's, that's what you guys want too. And this idea of a headshot, right. But, but just to make a counterpoint, my dad often invokes the example of how policy ultimately over like 30 years made smoking um, like less popular and pushed it out of the public. Right. So banning it in restaurants and stuff and his point and putting warning labels on packages like his point was that change is incremental. It takes years and decades of these little tweaks and you know whatnot. But the irony from a meta point of view is like scientists knew smoking was was carcinogenic, you know, 70 fucking years ago. And you know, it's climate change too. And so there is a kind of systemic conspiracy that normalizes in the first place the falsehood. Right. And, and marketizes and promotes the falsehood. And then we need this incremental change to undo it. And so there's a valid point there. We should work towards that incremental change in the right direction. But also we're trying to jam here and imagine like very short term, 10 year window, like global systems change and planetary consciousness. So we got to we got to do both. That's my closing point. <laughs> Speaking of that, if I, if, if I can like squeeze in just a final question, like mm -hmm. uh, how, you use the term Adam Kadmon in your older work. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. What do you understand by that? Because yeah. I love that term. I, I appreciate the question. I mean, you probably know more about it than I do, but I, I gravitated towards the term because I was packing my film narrative with all this mysticism, right? And all these uh, illusions. And so like one of the main characters is David Vitruvius. So he's like part the Vitruvian man, you know, that uh, Vitruvius was the architect that, that kind of came up with the, the proportions that then Da Vinci drew, right? And that became a kind of iconic symbol, you know, incorporating the golden ratio into the human form. And so I wanted something archetypal. And then, you know, Adam, the idea of Adam and Eve is like this, you know, Judeo-Christian notion of like the original human. But Adam Kadmon is like the abstraction of that. You know, it's like this cosmic metaphysical being that they're saying and like, you know, came into humanity or homo sapiens. And so I just thought it was a a cute kind of reference to incorporate into the story that I was telling that, that the, the guru of abstraction that I was playing has this kind of normal name, but esoteric sounding. 
and mm-hmm. that and that of course he is a person is just a person like i'm a person but it's a conscious act to try to to or it's a it's an activity you know i've i've participated in this activity through meditation and psychedelics but to kind of Im- imagine a metaphysical being or archetypal human that then maps on to who who we are right and so like the christ is a abstraction of a possibly historical figure named Jesus right and so that's um that's why I chose Adam Cadmon like this original man searching for this Archimedean point of 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 change and I think I think you know we have some connection over that 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 uh abstraction is itself is a good conceptual kind of point but it's also um a constellation of points, right? It's not, it's not easily reducible into one simple definition. Fantastic. Thank you for that. I would add, but I, I'm, I'm worried that we, I'm aware we, we need to wrap it up, Owen. Yeah. So, I mean, listen, it sounds like we've got plenty of material for another conversation and I would love to invite you back, Brent. I think you've been a great conversation partner. I think we can all benefit from doing more of this. Awesome. Thank you. I really enjoyed it and agree totally. And just one last point that I got to, highlighted here um owen you did say in the stoa talk towards the end like you know as a sort of advice to people make sure you have people who will challenge you and so you guys invited me to to do that and i think we had a very you know we proved a very productive um uh method in that so thank you absolutely right everybody let's kill it see you later guys all righty Bye-bye, guys. Thank you for the conversation.